0: Some football math coming at the bottom of the hour. How many teams are prime contenders? Our NFL tiers we do them weekly Thursday at 5:30. Uh, typically Wednesdays at 5:30. We do never read the comments, but that got shifted because of uh, how we just handled the show with the breaking news and, and everything yesterday. That'll be at six o'clock today. But obviously uh, the thing we talked about yesterday still our lead story today. Monumental moving their teams to Virginia, likely anyway. Uh, But what about it from the D.C. side of it? Let's talk about it with an expert. It's time for Not My Beat. Today's top story, from the perspective of someone who's there. You are looking live. This just in, Not My Beat. Michael Bryce Sadler covers D.C. government and politics for The Washington Post. He joins us now. Michael, thank you, sir. How are you doing this afternoon?
1: Sure, Craig. I'm doing all right. It's been a busy... uh couple of days,
0: I'll say that much. Yeah, for sure. So, um there is so much to talk about here from the DC side of it. And I, and I guess like the baseline question that I feel like most people in the audience want to know is essentially did DC fumble the bag here? Like they clearly had were able to conjure up some kind of uh, offer with 500 million dollars seemingly at the last second. Some of your reporting with your colleague Megan Flynn uh talks about the timeline of that that kind of extended a few days backwards. But also Jim Van Stone, the COO of Monumental, said yesterday on Grant and Danny that Virginia just provided something D.C. couldn't. They provided the opportunity to build this campus. So as you've reported on this, how like where do you kind of come down on how realistic it was for D.C. to keep these teams in the first place?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's one of those things where it could be a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, right? So I think when you look at what Virginia was offered and what Ted has himself talked about at that news conference, uh, I think it was yesterday. Time has escaped me, but uh, he indeed was
0: somehow just yesterday.
1: Um, he he came out and said, "Look, we have a chance to build from the ground up here, a blank slate, if you will," and that's not really possible with the current setup in D.C. And that's not even talking about the dollar amount right like the commonwealth it would cost them 1.6 billion dc's in the conversation for 500 billion so there's just more money at play more space at play but i think the other side of this this conversation is what uh we've been hearing a lot from people privately who are kind of privy to these conversations is well was dc moving urgently enough over the summer when monumental had expressed this interest in potentially going to Virginia? or let the city know it was entertaining such a decision. Uh, Was there enough of an emphasis on trying to make sure that didn't happen? Considering when the offer was ultimately presented, considering how kind of haphazard that all seemed, it's lended itself to uh, that type of conversation of well, did did DC move with enough urgency on this?
0: And you even have other uh, DC city council members in your story saying like, we didn't know about this. Uh, Phil Mendelson, the chair, did obviously mayor Bowser did but is that something that is typical and I would assume problematic in the DC city government that there is poor communication that people aren't looped in who need to be or would like to be and have a right to be is this something that is emblematic or is this something that is kind of unique to this uh, this issue
1: that's a good question I mean I think it depends on the issue but there has been a criticism over the years and the time I've covered this beat on how effectively the council and the mayor are working together, how well they're communicating with one another, especially, especially on issues like public safety, uh, which I'm sure you're aware of. Um, but it's not, this isn't something completely novel or new. There have been strained relationships in the past, uh, between the council and the mayor's office. And in this case, the council doesn't have the authority to make the type of offer the mayor has made. It, it does, take them both working together like the mayor proposes it and then the council passes it. So uh, they've come out to say we're in lockstep behind this proposal now, but I think the bigger question is what happened in the months leading up to this proposal being put on the table uh, over the past few days.
0: Michael Bryce Sadler, who is uh, a D- or excuse me, a Washington Post reporter covering the D.C. government uh, and politics for the Metro desk is with us here on the Hoffman Show. So you mentioned the public safety side of this, and there is obviously been an increase in crime in d c. Whether it is as much as the narrative, uh, it, it, depending on who you ask, you know everyone's got a different narrative, different perspective. Um, right. you know, that whether it matches that is is, I think, up for debate. So Michael, as someone who covers this, can you give us a realistic picture of, the crime situation in D.C., how much that potentially played a role here and where that is kind of, I would say, relative to the rest of the country, where I think a lot of other big cities and frankly, a lot of other rural and or, and suburban areas are also seeing uh, increases in crime post pandemic for a litany of reasons.
1: Right. Well, I mean, D.C.'s problems, I think you stated them pretty fairly, Uh, they're acute. And even some of those other big cities that saw increases during the pandemic have seen reductions that D.C. has not experienced itself. So um, while the headlines, I think, can be a bit sensational and how people feel about it, again, will depend on who you ask. I would say the general tenor among lawmakers here, among top city leaders, among residents is that Uh, things are not in a good place and that a lot of people do not feel safe. Uh, So that's been the top priority for the mayor, for the council is trying to figure out how can we turn this around through legislation, through changes in policy, through tweaks in procedure uh, to have these stats go in a different direction. Now, as it pertains to the stadium, you know, there, there's been reporting that we've done that uh, Ted Lances himself has had some concerns about activity outside the arena Uh, But I think if you go out, you go to a Wizards game, you go to a Capitals game or a concert, you see tons of people out uh, by Capital One Arena. I don't live far away from the arena. So while uh, there are concerns about crime, I don't think it's prevented anyone from going downtown to see a game, right? And I think that's what makes this uh, all the more devastating for residents. It's not a situation where nobody wanted to go downtown to the arena. Maybe if you are uh, a huge Wizards fan, you haven't had a lot to cheer about lately, but um, outside of that, the crime concerns, it's really case by case, depending on who you ask and what their experience has been personally. But this year has felt different compared to others.
0: Oh, Michael, you should see the the YouTube comments, how many people will not come downtown and how many of them are in my YouTube comments. It's uh, it's amazing. Uh, really, really amazing. Uh, Michael Bryce Sadler's is with us, D.C. government reporter uh, here on The Hoffman Show. Of course, Michael writing for The Washington Post. So one of the things that I've kind of been talking about the last, uh, I can't believe, again, it's only been, you know, 48 hours or or 36 hours uh, since this news broke is the opportunity that exists for D.C. now to reimagine that area. What are some of the proposals to try to make the Penn Quarter area into something vibrant and viable again, considering we are in a new era, a new economy where people aren't going to go to work like they did prior to 2020?
1: Right. Well, this has been a top concern for the city all year before the wizards and capitals leaving was even really part of the uh, common conversation uh, as it pertains to downtown and the area around Chinatown. Um, The city's finances are struggling in large part because of how downtown changed with the pandemic. Workers who are working more remotely, uh, less visitors downtown overall. Now the city has seen some increases in hotel, uh, people staying at hotels in terms of tourism, that has increased gradually. And I think anecdotally, if you look around at who's commuting, you're seeing improvements. So the focus for the city now, and they have a downtown action plan that was supposed to come this fall and is actually going to now be uh, unveiled next year, is figuring out how they can attract new people downtown, residents, uh, more visitors, other types of things besides office spaces and bringing workers in who... Uh, I think we all know the remote work situation is probably here to stay for a lot of companies uh, who are moving out of the big buildings they lease downtown and trying to save money because of that. So how do you repurpose those buildings? How do you bring new visitors downtown, whether that's using uh, empty retail spaces for art uh, exhibits, that's something that's been discussed, public performances like concerts to make use of old spaces, everything's on the table right now for the city.
0: Uh, one of the big areas that is definitely needed in the city is affordable housing. And it seems like, I mean, look, we're in Navy Yard and they built Nats Park and it's like, wow, everything's great. Nats Park or Navy Yard used to be a hellhole. And now look at it. And I'm like, yeah, look at all the luxury apartments that people can buy. There's there's very little affordable housing. Do you think that some of that area um, could turn into that? And and also, how does, you know, 82 nights plus playoffs a year worth of games not being there, change the prospects for that area?
1: Well, to the second point you made, I mean, that is going to have to be something the city figures out. Um, If, for example, the Mystics are relocated, uh, obviously Georgetown might continue to play there. That's still an ongoing conversation from what I understand, but that would be a huge change uh, that city leaders would need to figure out how to replicate that. You really can't. Um, without those teams there. So it's a matter of, again, getting creative uh, once again. And in terms of affordable housing in general, that has been, I think the calling card for a lot of housing advocates and others uh, who, who care about housing and housing people who have been priced out of the city is use this opportunity to turn some of these older buildings downtown into apartments into affordable housing. The challenge is that's a lot easier said than done Uh, it sounds great on paper, but actually reconfiguring the plumbing, the windows, how these office buildings are set up into an apartment uh, is expensive. So the city has tried to create some incentives for developers to actually undergo those types of renovations and changes, but whether or not all of that housing is going to be affordable remains to be seen. Certainly some lawmakers uh, on the D.C. Council have sought to Um, siphon off some of the housing that's maybe set to be built to make sure that it's some level of affordability. But uh, with the economy, the way it is affordable really is like a quotation mark, um, because even what's labeled affordable housing might not be able to house the poorest people in the city.
0: Right. Um, Michael Bryce Sadler is with us, D.C. government and politics reporter for The Washington Post. Uh, on the budget side of this, Michael, the $500 million that they came up with, because you mentioned how strapped the city is financially right now, and cities don't operate at losses uh, in the way that like the federal government does. There's no such thing as a deficit in a city budget for those listening that might not understand that or know that. Um, The idea that you can just come up with $500 and be like, oh, we have it, Ted, please stay. Is that now $500 million that can go to education, to housing, to other things? Or was the way that money was accounted for requiring some of the revenue that these teams were bringing, and thus that money either went to Ted Leonsis or is not going to exist?
1: So part of the reason that, D.C. was able to present this offer now, at least as the mayor explained, is that uh, because of the shifting financial in the city, which, again, some of the finances are looking better than what was predicted earlier this year, uh, the city was able to refinance some of its debt, uh, which creates an avenue to make that kind of offer. Now, that would be borrowing, so it's not a situation where there's just... Money suddenly available. Um, the emphasis and why the full council is behind this is because the arena is such an economic engine that uh, when it comes to some of the things you mentioned, like social services, if there's if there's no teams downtown, if there's no arena, if that downtown activity is not there, then that hampers the city's ability even further to provide those services moving forward. So it's really imperative to get downtown on track economically so that the city can keep providing, uh, the housing, the social services that it has with demand as high as it's ever been for things like rent relief and support along those lines.
0: So last thing for you, Michael, um, Leonsis owns the building. The city owns the land. Leonsis hates his lease and it's coming up relatively soon. What are the chances that the city, whether it's the city or Leonsis's side of it, just go like, "No, nah, we're done here"? Because they're saying all the right things right now uh, on the Monumental side. We know we want to keep going. We want to. There's concerts that we've had to turn down that we can fill Capital One Arena with. All this stuff. But what are the chances that by the time, whether it's they break ground in 2025 on Potomac Yards or 2027 when when these teams leave, that that's the end of the relationship between Leonsis Monumental? and Capital One Arena, and that space all of a sudden is is vacant and available to whatever extent it would be available for, whether it's demolition in something that's not an arena or for someone else to come in and and try something else with that spot in an arena-sized and shaped building.
1: Right. I mean, I think based on everything Ted has said so far, city lawmakers and the mayor operating with the impression that that is not, that's not the situation right now. Now, do I think that uh, privately. There are probably probably some discussions about, well, what does that future look like if uh, Leon just makes that decision? That's one thing, maybe, but for right now, there's an understanding that there is still a commitment to operating the arena. Granted, it would look a lot different with those two teams in play, and I think the future is a huge question. I don't know what the relationship looks like, frankly, uh, after this move Leonsis has made and how negotiations will go. Obviously, D.C. doesn't think it's out of the picture in terms of retaining those teams, uh, but Virginia has a ton of momentum. So right now, the focus is, well, here's our best and final offer the city has offered uh, Ted Leonsis, and we'll see where it goes from there.
0: We will all watch with bated breath, uh, and and you'll probably watch sooner, if you will, than the rest of us, which means we're going to be reading your reporting. Uh, Michael Bryce Sadler, D.C. government and politics reporter for The Washington Post as part of their Metro section. Uh, thanks so much for your time here on the radio, Michael, and uh, great work. And I'm sure we'll talk to you again down the line as this story continues to develop.
1: I'm sure. Thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely. Again, that's Michael Bryce Sadler. He and Megan Flynn wrote a great piece that's worth your time in the post on all of this. Um, there is so much, God, I just, it it feels like drinking from a fire hose because there's so many different angles to this. Um, one thing that I will say on the affordable housing side of it and these buildings, I know this isn't necessarily a sports topic, but it's all related. And this is personal to me because um, this might surprise people. Like I am a come from middle-class parents, um, you know, white dude seemingly has a great job, and this job is great in a bunch of different ways, but, like, they don't pay you a lot when you get started in radio. Um, a radio salary is, is nothing, to, nothing to write home about, certainly nothing to send a check home about. Sure, if you can be Stephen A. Smith or Mike Greenberg, uh, this industry pays you really freaking great. Um, era if you're the, I mean, frankly, if you're, uh, say, a morning show that's been on for 27 years, like, you, you build up enough sponsors and stuff over time, and uh, you're, you're doing all right. But as someone who started in this industry, as it started to change drastically in the early 2010s, and the digital era came, and radio has been on a, on a journey, as as is newspapers, um, and, and frankly, television. Like, look what happened with all these regional sports networks. I will just stop meandering and tell you that when I worked in Dallas – I was making, my salary was $25,000 a year, 25. Um, When I moved here, it more than doubled simply because uh, 980 used to be a union shop and the minimum that they were allowed to pay me was more than double what I was making in Dallas. Um, I supplemented my income in Dallas by doing more shifts and getting paid an hourly rate on top of my salary uh, for weekend shows and, and extra things. So yeah, it wasn't great. And, but because of that, I actually qualified for a rental assistance program in the city. And so I used to live because it was I needed to live outside of the city to afford to be able to live um, in, in a place of my own. I used to live in, in Valley Ranch. Um, is ironic because I didn't cover the Cowboys like I wound up covering the Commanders. Um, and even though the facility was a mile from my apartment. But then I wanted to be closer because... Um, the station I was working for uh, was originally owned by Disney, like big ESPN, and got leased essentially to another company whose office was downtown. And so in moving to downtown Dallas to be closer, I was able to live in a, what was a pretty nice apartment building thanks to a rental assistance program because I was getting paid nothing. And I think when we talk about like the types of apartments and the types of things that can be built in D.C., some creativity around that should be in play like it's not just about building super basic nothing apartments so that low lower income salaries can make you be able to live there it's a combination of both like let's let's give people a nice place to live but help them afford it like there there are more creative ways to go about this and it's going to be on real estate developers it's going to be on the city um it's going to be on a lot of different people to, to figure out the best solutions. And those people are way, way smarter than me, but it's interesting hearing someone like Michael who covers this day in, day out, talk about the difficulties of, yeah, this is expensive. Um, which is why developers want to make these things into luxury apartments because they can make more money off of it. And they can also recoup their investment faster because turning an office space into an apartment where you go from having like one bathroom on every floor to you know, 25 to 60 to whatever number of apartments that all need one or more bathrooms in them and showers and, you know, laundry uh, facilities and and all of those things, whether they're on a floor or each individual unit. Um, These are complicated, expensive things. And by the way, you're dealing with union shops, um, which is fine by me, but it it costs more money um, because the standards are higher. And so there's just a lot of stuff that goes into this, and it's extremely extraordinarily complicated. Um, but it's going to take a lot of investment and reimagination. Uh, and now, to I, I just wonder if you're, if I'm the city, how I treat that Penn Quarter neighborhood? Do am I try to revitalize businesses and change the kinds of businesses that are there, or am I fully embracing a more residential area? And what happens at Capital One Arena is going to probably influence that because it's going to influence how likely it is that people actually want to live there in a place where there is or is not concerts, or there are or are not concerts and basketball games and monster truck events and you know events in conjunction with the convention center, uh, which is something that that Monumental has mentioned. So it's all intertwined. It's all intersectional. It's all very complicated and a lot of it goes well outside the bounds of sports. Very inside the bounds of sports, NFL tier rankings. That is where we go next. It's the Hoffman Show on a Thursday here on the Team 980, streaming live on YouTube at the Team 980, and always live on the free Odyssey app.